0: Open your Bibles to John 12, please. The Gospel of John, chapter 12, that's page 898, if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. The fourth Gospel, the fourth book in the New Testament. I'd like to read John 12, verses 1 through 8, and invite you to follow along with me. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, as we open your word, it's with joy and expectation. Thank you that you have not only revealed yourself to us in this word, it is the breathed out word as the Apostle Paul describes it, but you have also preserved it through the generations. It is mind-boggling to think about what we hold in our hands this morning, what we set our eyes upon, how privileged this generation is. But we also believe your word that these truths are spiritually discerned, and to that end you have gifted us with the Holy Spirit himself. O Holy Spirit, come as our instructor, convict our hearts of sin and unbelief that we may turn away from it. You, please, be the persuasive presence. Let the force of these words take root in our hearts that they may bear the beautiful fruit of faith, of obedience, of joy and rest. Come, Holy Spirit, come to each heart here this morning for all the needs that are presented here. There's no individual on planet earth who could possibly minister to those needs, but you are the ever-present, all-present one. And we ask that you would work powerfully here, comfort and console as necessary, convict and exhort, even discipline as necessary. But oh, dear Spirit of God, take us from where we are to that point you know that we need to be. Please, for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for the glory of our God and Father, for the glory of your own uh, holy presence and reputation do all these things we pray in Jesus name amen you know for all the cosmic forces of work at work so to speak in the story of Jesus From his life to this climactic moment, he's actually a day before the triumphal entry that we're celebrating in one sense to the climactic moment of his death on the cross to the resurrection for all of those massive movements of divine purpose and divine presence. It staggers me that there are those very personal, even intimate stories woven into the story of Jesus. They're written for our instruction and encouragement, not simply that we might have real life object lessons or see Jesus at work and in the people that he is living with at that moment, but that people like us would be able to enter in by faith and identify with these individuals, reaching the conclusions that the word of Jesus is also sufficient for our forgiveness, for our salvation, for our healing or restoration. The Gospels in particular are designed to put us face-to-face with Jesus, even as he is face-to-face with real people like you and me. I've long been intrigued by Mary, as many of you have been. I can't say that I identify with her in uh, all things, partly she's a woman, I'm a man, But there are some sweet things about her that I think every one of us desire to experience and even emulate. And you know, it's interesting to me that if you read three of the key moments recorded in the Gospels about Mary, all three of them share something unique that struck me this week for the first time. See if you can pick up on that one particular thing that I might have in mind as I say that. If you were to go to Luke 10, you're welcome to turn there, but I'm only going to reference this for a moment, and you began reading through the account of how Jesus interacted with Mary and Martha and her brother on a particular occasion. Luke 10:39 records that Mary, while her sister served, is seated at the feet of Jesus to hear him teach, and Martha begins to complain to the Lord himself. You know, basically saying, tell my sister to get up and come help me. But Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. He's essentially saying, leave your sister alone. Let her continue to sit at my feet. Then, back one chapter from where we are right now in John 11, the tragedy of Lazarus's deadly illness unfolds. They, the sisters have sent word to Jesus, but he intentionally delays his journey to their home. And in that intermittent period, Lazarus dies. And as Jesus makes his way to their household and to enter into the wake of, of mourning and grief with them. Martha first goes to meet Jesus. There she is taking the initiative and, and she and the Lord have a sweet interaction and then she goes back to the house and says to her sister, the Lord has arrived. And in John eleven thirty two, 32, we read that Mary fell at his feet weeping and saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus weeps with her knowing that he's going to go to the grave and raise her brother from the dead, but still enters into her grief, not dismissive of it, not careless with it. The Lord of glory, weeping. And then we come to this particular story, right on the heels of Lazarus' miraculous resurrection from the dead. And where do we find Mary? Are you picking up on the little... Point of curiosity, she's again at his feet. In Luke, seated at his feet to learn. In John 11, bowing low at his feet in grief. And here in John 12, kneeling at his feet in worship. There's something extraordinary that unfolds for us, and I want you to know, first of all, her extravagant love It's not a love that she generated in herself, it's a love that is a response to his own extravagant humility, the extravagance of his life on planet earth, the extravagance of his ministry, the extravagance of his teaching, the extravagance of his salvation. And you look at the gospel account with me and notice that John gives us important detail here, noting verse 2, they gave a dinner Martha served, Lazarus was one of those. What a a celebratory event this must have been. I suspect that the conversation included more, you know, recounting of the tale of Lazarus' resurrection. How could it not? But then we come to verse 3. Mary, therefore, in light of all that's unfolding, in light of all that she had experienced directly from the Lord, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, Let's pause right there. We know that there's a value fixed to this, in part, by what Judas will say, as John recorded that just a few verses beyond that. It's a quite a large quantity. Most of us read that and say, well, how would we know? And we convert some things and, and arrive at Uh, a a quantity of about 11 half or 12 ounces, which doesn't tell us a whole lot, but then it's Judas who says it might have been sold for 300 denarii. That's the equivalent of 300 days' wages. It's what you and I earn in a year, roughly speaking. It's quite extraordinary. The fact that it's made of pure nard tells us that it also is a precious possession. Nard, or spikenard as it is also called, uh, was known to possess a powerful sedative action along with just the aroma, the fragrance of it. There was therapy in it and it was frequently used then and I'm told even some now as um, an ointment or perfume that would relieve stress, an essential oil if I might call it that. But because nard was not native to Israel, that meant it had in all likelihood been imported from India. And many believe that that is also what helps us to understand the costly value of it. More than a few commentators note something else for us, and you have to dig this out of the history of that day. It's not recorded for us in Scripture, so I want to put it in its proper place, but as one author has noted for us, it was part of, likely part of Mary's dowry, part of the resource that she would use when it came time to secure a mate. Not that she bought a husband or had plans to, but it was, it was just part of how those marital relationships were formed. This author writes, since Mary's gift was of such an economic significance, sociologically Mary had depleted her potential of gaining a husband. That move is not to be understood as merely some nice act of honoring the Lord, but as a tremendous demonstration of commitment to him. As a result, Jesus graciously accepted the act of dedication that many might consider both strange and wasteful. So think about this. By pouring it out upon the Lord, she is expressing that her eligibility for marriage, that personal nest egg as we might refer to it, is of far less value to her than Jesus in this moment preceding his death, which he has told them again and again and again, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to be hung on a cross. The disciples aren't getting it to this point. Maybe Mary is among the few who does. She's pouring out the potential for a life's mate, the expectation of a family, her future security. It's all poured out on Jesus. What a Astonishing statement of his worth. I wonder if there's anything more precious to you than Jesus. Is there some possession that you would say, I would never part with that? Is there some quality or gift, some ability that you say, "Mm, it's mine. I love Jesus, but not enough to sacrifice that. It's a most extravagant, most extravagant gift of love because of the cost. But there's also extravagance in the way she pours it out on Jesus. And we might describe this as an extravagant act of humble worship. For she takes this precious ointment that is, at minimum, it is a year's worth of work and probably part of her dowry, but notice what she does with it that John highlights. The other Gospels record that she poured it over his head, and the the quantity itself um, would would be sufficient for a head-to-toe anointing, but John highlights the fact that she anoints the feet of Jesus. Now, even to this day, our feet are generally regarded as one of the less honorable parts of the body, right? I mean, some of you have ugly, ugly feet. And you may even have family or friends who remind you, and when you walk around barefoot, they're like, oh, please, cover those things up. But particularly in the Jewish culture, touching the feet of someone was regarded as a very degrading experience, was normally reserved for slaves and others to whom little honor was due. That's part of what will make the foot washing that Jesus will engage in just a few days from now so spectacular. Spectacular. So mind blowing that he does the work of a household slave to wash the feet of his disciples. Well, Mary beat him to the crossroads, if you will. This author goes on to write The fact that Mary was willing to do this act at a meal in the presence of others communicates volumes about her elevated regard for Jesus. Oh, how precious these feet are the feet that have carried the Christ from village to village healing, teaching, performing miracles. These are also the feet that within a week will be nail-pierced and forever nail-scarred in love for Mary, in love for you. The extravagance deepens, though, because John also records that after anointing his feet, she wiped his feet with her hair. It would have been acceptable if she had used a clean cloth a fine towel of Egyptian cotton, perhaps linen that she had secured, but she uses her hair. The Apostle Paul wrote in First Corinthians eleven fifteen that a woman's hair is actually her glory. Even to this day, it's painful for a woman to lose her hair as a result of a sickness or illness. And it, guys, sorry, you'll never fully understand. It's just different for ladies. A Jewish woman would typically wear her hair up, but to let her hair down in the presence of an assembly like this was an act of humility in itself, but she begins to wipe the feet. It's such a beautiful choice, though, isn't it, when you think of the fact that it is her glory, and she happily employs her glory such as it is, small and insignificant as it is in light of this great king. But it is her glory nonetheless, and she employs that ...to worship Him extravagantly, to draw all the attention to Him, to say, He is the one that is worthy of all that I am. My personal wealth, my hope of a future family, the little bit of glory that I possess symbolized by this hair, I'm nothing in comparison to Him. And I don't care how long her hair was, It still required her to put her face low before him. Humbly, reverently, lovingly, extravagantly, she bows before the king and employs the glory of her womanhood in service to him. It's spectacular. Spectacular and surpassed only by the glory of the king himself. Have you ever surrendered the glory of your life to this king? Does he possess your heart at its deepest points? Is there any resource that you could look at at this moment? Anything valuable that you have laid aside? Any ability, any talent that you possess that is not already surrendered to him fully? Jesus doesn't want your stuff Jesus wants you, and here's a woman who understood that. And because he had her heart so completely, she looks at the, the, the few things that are in her possession and says, it's all his. What is your glory? And are you pouring out any resource on him? Are you employing any of the glory of your being in service to him? A king like this deserves everything. It's not only extravagant because of the great value fixed on that ointment and the great humility and intensity of her personal worship, but it's also extravagant because of the extended effect. Did you notice this? Look at the text again. As she pours this out, John notes, verse 3, the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume, he doesn't write it into this text, but as he recorded this gospel probably many years after the fact, I wonder if he had you know, a sensory memory, olfactory reminiscence. With pen to parchment, as those words flowed through that ink, if in his soul he said, I can still smell it. I'll bet he did, because the fragrance filled more than a physical room fragrance filled the minds and hearts and john doesn't record it but mark records it in his gospel chapter 14 verse 9 jesus himself said i say to you wherever truly i say to you wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world what she has done will be told in memory of her and here we are fulfilling that very word today i'll guarantee you that mary didn't scheme and put this plot together and say if i do something really neat jesus will memorialize me in his eternal word no, but that's what Jesus did. It's a reminder to us of how generous and kind the Lord Himself is to take even the most sincere, humble, Uh, unknown act and memorialize it forever that's part of the expectation that every believer ought to have for arriving in his presence one day where he says you did not do this to be put that it might be seen publicly you did not do this to be known personally but I saw the beauty of that I saw the glory in it I saw the value in it and I want people to know of the intensity of your love and the greatness of your service and the depth of your humility He tells us in multiple places there will be rewards for his servants in heaven. So there's a fine line there. To be motivated for, for public sight, I mean, could actually be a sinful motive, but just understand the heart of the king. That he's the one who places such great value on this act. And beloved, such is the service we render to our Savior in our day, that in his kindness he sanctifies it and extends its usefulness far beyond the immediate time and location and even the purpose that we intended. Some of you pray so diligently. You've prayed so faithfully and yet seen nothing for your prayers at this moment. Your Savior sees... And in time, he will answer. But even beyond that, the the fragrance of your prayers actually ascend before the Father like incense. The the scriptures teach us that in multiple places. And we often forget as we are agonizing in prayer or just praising God in secret that that there is something far greater taking place in the heart of God himself. Your prayers, though, you, you haven't smelled one of them They are the fragrance of heaven itself. That's just one example. Such an extravagant love. Now, in contrast to this, there is what I would want to describe simply as deadly greed. We read on in verse 5 and and see the character Judas speaking in a way that is alarming. And John reminds us, verse 4, that this is the one who is about to betray him. So, so the context of what is unfolding adds the, the, the poignant sorrow and, and even shock and hypocrisy. I mean, it just, it just supercharges Judas's words with contrast. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Oh, those sound like pious words, don't they? It's not the first time pious words have been used to veil sinful greed. While Judas, according to Mark's gospel, chapter 14, verse 4, may not have been alone in his assessment because Mark recorded that there were some, plural, who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? Judas verbalizes what's in his heart. Look at verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Those men didn't know it at that time, did they? Because even at the end of the week when Jesus told them straight up, one of you will betray me, they could not figure it out. John says, no, he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Imagine how painful a discovery that was for them when they started putting two and two together after the fact, and like, well, you know, I wondered where that money went. Just always struck me as odd, but we could never figure it out. Boy, that guy was smooth. Yeah, but he's eaten up with a deadly greed. What, what a stark contrast. Mary lavishing her love on G- Jesus. Judas exploiting his relationship with Jesus. For him, Jesus is a, a vehicle to personal gain. It started as he realized how he could skim off the top, pad his own living, provide for his own future perhaps. Who knows what was in his heart, but he's in love with the money that's available to him And that sense of control and power that goes with it. He reveals the greed of his heart ultimately by this sinister scheme. John notes verse 4 that he was about to betray him. He doesn't go to this point yet, but let's fill in a couple of, of blanks that even these words of John draw for us. And and let's add the perspective that we can gain from the rest of the gospel story. Within six days, he will have completed the transaction to sell Jesus to his enemies. And what was the price? 30 pieces of silver. Now, how does that compare to 300 denarii? Well, 30 pieces of silver is not a small sum either. It's about three months wages by what historians tell us. The price of a good used car is that what Jesus is worth to you? That's what Judas could get out of him. He couldn't even negotiate for the price of a luxury car. Such a contrast. The greed is part of what leads Judas to his eternal destruction. It's a sobering warning for us, lest we too view Jesus as a means of getting to our ends. The currents of greed sometimes move deeply in our souls, and move us to do things, to say things, to plot things, to scheme things that we would never dream possible. Yes, even in the name of religion and relationship with Jesus. Is it possible that some of you speak rather piously as Judas did? Even participate in the work that he commissioned, that Jesus commissions to his disciples do. Jesus did. He went out on multiple preaching missions, teaching ministries, healing ministries. Why did Jesus even permit that guy to go? I don't know, but there he was, playing the role all the while under the control, not of grace, but of greed. I wonder if there is someone here today who, if truth be told, would have to admit that I'm exactly where Judas was, religious, participating, but I have nothing in in my heart by way of extravagant love for Jesus. I've never come under the power of his grace. I simply live under the power of greed, or fill in your own blank. My friend, you know there's hope for you today, because if you have not breathed your last breath on planet Earth, as Judas will do in about a week, and slipped into eternity where the condition of a person's soul is fixed forever. You're not there yet. You're here. That means there's time for you to turn away from greed, to beg God for mercy, and to experience the rescue of His grace. Would you call upon Him right now? You don't even have to utter audible words, just sincere words from your soul to him, Lord God, I'm dominated by my greed, I've looked at religion as as a vehicle to get me where I want to go, I've looked even at, at Jesus himself as a genie, not a savior or king that I should worship, have mercy upon me and save me, if you would cry from your soul to him like that right now, he would save you one of the staggering parts of this gospel story as it unfolds, and I would encourage you to be reading in the gospels, particularly the events that are recorded uh, from the triumphal entry all the way to the resurrection. Read through them this week, but if you, if you put together uh, the, the gospel accounts of that last supper together and start noting the number of times that Jesus speaks in a way that it's crystal clear he is speaking directly to Judas, letting him know, I know what you've done. I know what you're about to do. And sweetly and repeatedly warning him, don't do it. Don't go there. Offering him an exit ramp. That will show you the heart of the Savior. That even for this one who, as the Lord tells us in other places, was, was foreordained to betray. That it still was shattering to Jesus that this beloved one would be lost. The Lord would not have you to be lost. Well, that brings us finally, though, to the king's honor. There's an extravagant love that we see in Mary. And then we come to that deadly greed of Judas. But now we come to the final words in this little paragraph. And these are beautiful. Jesus says, verse 7, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The king himself honors this extravagance that Judas had certainly called out as waste and others were thinking it in their hearts. Can you imagine a scenario where the king himself would run interference for you and finally say to somebody, stop it, leave her alone. Parents have to step in when children begin to fight sometimes. You say to one sibling, for the protection of the other, stop, leave her alone. Jesus is doing more than just quieting some painful words that Judas had spoken that might have diminished Mary's joy in that moment, but he goes beyond to say, so that she may keep it. The question that a lot of Bible scholars wrestle with is what does the little word it refer to? And I think simply if you look at the context and you consider all the options, it becomes simple and and very plain. Let her keep this act of worship. Let her keep it for the day of my burial. In Mark 14, verse 6, Jesus actually says she's done a beautiful thing. She simply did a week before what others like Joseph of Arimathea would do after Christ's death. She was simply doing by faith what any worshiper of Christ would do. And though we, we're not going to bring perfumes to a worship service this week and pour them out in this room, we are going to bring our hearts multiple times. We've, we've begun today. We're going to gather Friday night at seven for the Good Friday service and then next Sunday morning for a resurrection celebration. We're going to pour out our hearts and extravagant worship and joyful praise to this king because of what he has done for us and Mary's anticipating. She may not know that it's, it's, it's a week away at this point but she's believed the word that Christ has spoken she's entered into the teachings by faith and knows that this Lord and Savior will be the sacrifice for her sins and Jesus is not about to let Judas or anyone else denigrate the extravagant act of worship and love that Mary has just poured out upon him and even in honoring Mary he emphasizes the certainty of his coming death it sets the stage for the week to come Jesus, despite what Mary may or may not know or believe at that particular point, Jesus certainly knows all that's coming and he does not miss the opportunity to reinforce what he has been telling these precious and sometimes thick-headed disciples. I've come to this place to die. One author writes, it was a marvelous symbol of burial that would answer the ultimate question of life itself. It was an anointing fit for a king who came to save the world. Don't you love this king? And don't you love the ordinary people like Mary that he just sweeps into his kingdom? Not by force, not by manipulation, but by the power of his love and sacrifice. Are you one of those like Mary who just says Jesus is everything? He is the treasure And having Jesus, you have everything this life could ever give you. When you understand the greatness of the king, then the extravagance of this sacrifice makes sense. But if you don't understand and know the king, then it seems like waste. As we begin this holy week together, celebrating the king, looking forward to the cross by faith, and the resurrection. Can you say today, he is my treasure? He is the thing, the one I value above all other earthly relationships, experiences, resources, opportunities. Beloved, if there is anything else competing for the love of your heart, turn it loose today. And come to him. It may not be greed that controls your heart as it controlled Judas, but if there is anything else that controls you to the place where you actually would sell Jesus, figuratively speaking, you're in deep trouble. But God in his mercy stands before you today and says, don't do it. Come to me. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Spirit of God, would you... Take this beautiful story, simple, rich, rich truths of it, and sanctify our hearts. Cleanse away those sinful affections and motivations, and where greed may be the controlling, dominating influence in our hearts, O oh Lord God, pour out your grace and rescue us before we destroy ourselves. And those around us. Thank you that your grand eternal story of redemption. Includes the ordinary and common people of this world. And if there is room for one like Mary. To come so near. To sit at your feet and learn. To bow at your feet. In deep sorrow. To anoint your feet in humble, extravagant worship, then there is room for us. So take us as we are. Cleanse us fully and position us to serve you however you will. You are the great and only king and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray.